This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-hosts are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors, and Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. We are live again today. Today, thanks to the miracle of Sirius XM broadcasting technology, we're hosting from home office space. Uh, you know, please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show for you today. We have two of the most timely topics topical conversations in the first half of the show. We have a professor from Taiwan talking about how Asia is dealing with the coronavirus pandemic, different countries, different responses, uh, and really what can we learn here in the U.S. from some of the what's been effective in, in Asia, Taiwan, Singapore in particular. Um, but we're going to also you know, get the second half of the show. One of the big news items this week has been what's been happening in oil. We have oil executives at the White House. Uh, we have discussions about OPEC meetings, and we have one of the best oil commentators I've, I've followed uh, coming on the show in the second half of the program as well. Um, but Professor Siegel, big uh, economic news starting to come out. We know we've shut down the economy, but we're starting to see some some big numbers here. Yeah. Um, you know, all the numbers we see are in the rear view mirror. Um, uh, yeah, that was a big number shocker last yesterday, actually, the six million plus uh, unemployment claims, which added to the previous week is 10 million. Uh, this, uh, you know, data that we got this morning, normally the most important data of the month, is no longer the most important <laughs> data of the month. Uh, in fact, all the economic data is is uh, pales in comparison to the um, to the medical data, to the data about the virus, um, uh, it, the, the data about the flattening of the curve. Uh, this, this, uh, the data about the potential therapeutics, all that um, is much more important and is what's driving uh, the market than uh, some, you know, rearview mirror. Um, as I said last week, uh, the government's done its job, both the Fed and the government. There may have to be another phase. We do understand uh, a lot of technical, diff- you know, ch- um, Changes will be made, but nonetheless, we're giving huge amount of income support, unemployment benefit extension, uh, and the Federal Reserve has definitely made the um, uh, capital markets um, calmer, at least as calm as they can be during this crisis. Uh, and we see so far uh, the secured overnight funding rate down to one basis point. It stayed there. The Fed funds cash rate is five basis points. Uh, the 10 years, 57 basis points, it is, you know, just flirting with its, its low that it reached. Uh, trading is, is much better in all these. We've had, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the high-yield markets, et cetera, are not dealing with the, with the liquidity as they before, but they, they are trading. Uh, you can get deals done. Um, uh, so the markets are... Uh, uh, I think have been taken care of, certainly in phase one. Uh, what, what we need to concentrate now is, again, flattening the curve um, and uh, uh, working on therapeutics uh, and, uh, and then also thinking about once the f- curve is flattened, we are not there yet. Uh, you know, what, what, how, how do we do a measured uh, ramp-up uh, of, our, of our system? 
and um, um, in, in, in the, I think that that that's the most important thing facing uh, facing uh, the markets today. Yeah, and so that we're definitely going to have a good conversation on the the virus and how it's spreading. We've been getting commentary from Lee Chen, you know, throughout our, our last few weeks. Lee Chen, any what's your your current read of what's going on with the virus? Anything you want to sort of talk about to to start us off here? Um, I think uh, California and Washington states are the first, you know, two states that have um, made us aware of this is a serious situation. So their data is encouraging in the sense that uh, you do see the numbers start to uh, play towing. On the other hand, um, it's not decreasing as fast, which is suggesting many people have not taken seriously enough. And I I think the California, particularly in Santa Clara County, really have one of the best dashboard. If, if anybody want to look, uh, they have, you know, three dashboards shows the hospital situation, the testing situation, and the cases situation. So these are, you know, very good uh, data read uh, from, from their dashboards. Um, in terms of... Uh, uh, numbers uh, I it, it's so sad to you know predict these kind of forecasting numbers um, even you know because there's so much uh, experience from other countries so you could make a, a relatively a good forecaster disregarding any data out of China so in the US unfortunately this month is is going to be really terrible month um, my just based on my back of envelope uh, calculation we are very likely to have, you know, more than 10,000 deaths, even by month's end, this month's end. Um, a lot of estimates saying uh, less than 10,000 by July is really uh, uh, underestimate. I think it's um, people still need to realize that we not only need to flatten the curve, but, but really bend the curve enough that for this wave, that the hospital is not, not constrained. Let me bring in our, our guest to sort of hear what she's seeing in Asia. She's been she, uh, very staying up late for us, coming from Taiwan. Dr. Ruby Huang, a professor of national at the National Taiwan University School of Medicine. Uh, and Li Chen, I think you introduced us to Dr. Uh, to Ruby. Uh, do you want to give any introduction and sort of start off the conversation with her? Sure. Yeah. Hi, Dr. Huang. Yeah, I know. I think. Uh, in the last month, there's so much attention paid to China and China data. And I do want to make a comment that, you know, even in China, there are lots of questions, uh, uh, scrutiny on, on China data. And uh, uh, it, there's, you know, uh, asymptomatic cases which are not reported. And also uh, the number of deaths in the early uh, couple of weeks is under testing. So a lot of people died without even being tested. And even with, you know, testing, the asymptomatic cases are not reported. These are not, um, uh, these were under discussion uh, last month. And the asymptomatic cases, actually, I, I do believe the government was pressured a little bit to start reporting. So it's not true that, uh, you know, only West is questioning the data. People in China has been uh, questioning the data uh, very actively uh, about the, you know, the Ashbox uh, news was actually picked up by a Chinese media first, then uh, later on uh, picked up by the Western media. So I think uh, the focus really, I want people here to focus to shift to a, a couple other Asian uh, regions and countries which have done a really good job, like Singapore and Taiwan. And Professor Huang, uh, she has such expertise in terms of uh, Taiwan and Singapore. So I, I, thought, I think she will give us a lot of insights on how Taiwan uh, is doing this, um, combating this virus. Professor Huang, do you want to uh, give uh, you know your general assessment of what Taiwan has done that makes Taiwan you know so successful? Really, only five people dead. Thank you, thank you for having me. So um, yes, indeed, Taiwan and Singapore have responded extremely well in the initial containment phase. Um, Taiwan was perhaps the first to take actual action by boarding planes arriving from Wuhan for health surveillance. Um, Taiwan also approached WHO in end December 2019 to inquire the possibility of human-to-human transmission before anywhere else in the world. So I think mindset usually determines strategy. This is particularly true for Taiwan and Singapore after learning harsh lessons from SARS in 2003. 
So after SARS, we have seen the pandemic pre- preparedness for both co- governments being a very serious business. Both governments have um, invested significantly and sustainably uh, for for uh, to, for the pandemic preparedness. So the capacity is never built overnight. Um, it takes years of sustained investment in people, infrastructure, and the system. I think um, the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Singapore, Dr. Vivian Balakrishnan, he um, had a very nice um, perspective on this. And I quote, um, this is an acid test for every single country's quality of health care, standard of governance, and social capital. And if any one of these tripods is weak, it will be exposed and exposed quite unmercifully by this epidemic, unquote. So I think both Taiwan and Singapore have done um, very, very well in these three aspects. Uh, both governments are very proactive in identifying, testing, contact tracing, and isolating cases. Um, we have seen the power of utilizing digital technologies and integrating big data during the fight of this pandemic. Um, in fact, I think this is probably the biggest social experiment in terms of policy implementation to integrate this digital technology that has ever been held in the human history. We have seen Singapore using an app called Trace Together to aid their extremely meticulous contact tracing program. We have seen Taiwan forming public-private partnerships with telecom companies to set up the electronic sensing system for people undergoing home quarantine. And Taiwan has also integrated the immigration and customs system with the national health insurance system so that recent travel histories would be made transparent to the frontline doctors treating any patient with respiratory symptoms. Uh, um, doctor, can I, can I ask a question? Uh, these, these are quite sure. amazing uh, measures. Be, being related to the United States in Taiwan, and I, I'm looking at the... Uh, John Hopkins, and it is pretty amazing, uh, five deaths so far with yes. 348. I mean, this is uh, confirmed cases, um, is, is extremely low. Have they, what, what have you shut down? Have you shut down restaurants? Have you shut down schools? Um, uh, what exact measures are they, uh, are they taking now in, in the country? We haven't shut down any school, um, only temporarily um, for school. Uh, once there is a confirmed case, for example, a student or a staff, they will have a temporary shutdown for uh, for two weeks for cleaning, and then the, the classes will resume. And then, you know, uh, we haven't shut down restaurants. Uh, this is actually a long weekend. Uh, we still see people going out, but, you know, most of us uh, do uh, try to stay at home as much as possible to keep the social distancing. So and I think one distancing. one policy which is very different um, from Singapore and from the West is that we engage very early on the mask-wearing policy. Mm-hmm. So Taiwan has taken very early and swift decision to ban the export of masks and then to centrally control the distribution and also fix the price to avoid hoarding and profiteering. So the government also engaged, um, again, the public-private partnership with, uh, to commission manufacturing lines to speed up the national supply of surgical masks. So in fact, now our daily production has reached up to 13 million surgical masks. Okay, so um, these are, are these what we would call the N95 masks, or are they the cloth masks? Um, are they mandated no. by everybody when they leave their house, how is that done? This is not an N95 mask. This is the surgical mask, uh, which is not a cloth mask. So um, so we, uh, the government actually commissioned the manufacturing uh, line to manufacture the mask production of machineries and then speed up, ramp up the daily production. So, um, so every resident in Taiwan can buy the mask from the neighborhood pharmacies at the price of 16 cents per piece. 
So the government set quota for each purchase, and the quota system is monitored by the national health insurance system. It is a rolling adjustment depending on the manufacturing capacity. So right now we can、uh, we are able to purchase nine pieces every two weeks.、Uh, we、I think it's it not it's not mandatory, right? Wearing it is still、uh, voluntary.、Uh, well, it is step by step. It was voluntary to begin with. Now today, the government、um, just、uh, mandated when you are on public transportation,、mm-hmm. you are required to wear masks. Otherwise,、um, they can refuse to serve you. So,、um, so it's a, it's a gradual、uh, rolling adjustment system,、um, you know, depending on、um, the the cases that we are seeing. So we are entering the second phase,、um, second wave. Um, of this pandemic, which is you know、um, people coming back from the west, but in Taiwan we are fortunate so far that there is very limited local spread. We are still on very high、um, you know vigilance. That's why the mask、um, policy is, is being reinforced now. In fact, there are several scholars、um, here believe that the mask itself is. Another way to to create this social distancing,、um, or to even replace a real like lockdown wise social distancing. But I think you know if you if if you、um, apply all these measures together, a proper mask policy,、um, you know, social distancing as much as possible without、uh, shut、uh, without lockdown. And、uh, hand hygiene, which is very important as well, I think you know the flattening the curve can be done, can be achieved. And I, I think over the couple months, Taiwan has shown that that you know we've lived through this over seventy days so far, and we've shown to the world that this. Can be done, and it, there, there's hope there. So, let me just reintroduce our guest real quick. We're talking with Dr. Ruby Wong of,、uh, she's a professor also at the National Taiwan University School of Medicine.、Um, Ruby, we haven't really said anything about、um, testing. I'm curious. You know, one of the qu- questions was how long it took in the U.S. for us to get any tests available,、uh, and still, you could say broadly under-tested. What, what do you feel like the testing environment is in Taiwan? And then、uh, maybe we could transition also to say what was different in Singapore, where they were. Doing everything without really shutting things down, but they just started to shut things down. From what I understand today, maybe some comments on that as well. Yes,、um, for the testing, actually, we are very jealous about the Abbott,、um, uh, the, the new、um, ID system that that come up with a 15 minute rapid test for for COVID 19. But still, in Taiwan, we're still using the、um, the real time PCR system. Uh, the protocol was issued、uh, by the Taiwan CDC、um, and authorized through the pandemic preparedness、uh, channels.、Uh, many、um, hospitals, the laboratory, national laboratories、um, in the country, are authorized to run the tests. And then the turnaround time is usually within hours.、Um, so, but if we can get holds onto what um, you know, um, Abbott. From U.S. can can、um, has been has developed like 15 minutes. This will really ramp up、uh, when you have when we when when you want to move the screening to the population to the community. In Taiwan, we haven't reached that that stage yet because、uh, we don't see a lot of local、um, unlinked cases. So、um, so right now we're screening、uh, still screening through contact tracing. Still screening through patients with symptoms with unknown, you know, lung infiltrates.、Um, so,、um, so our capacity. I think we're among the highest capacity in the world. I think the first one, you know, per population, Singapore, followed by South Korea, and then Taiwan probably is the third、um, testing capacity. And South Korea took a different approach. By kind of like the drive-through screening,、uh, especially after having that mass church outbreak,、um, it is very interesting that the South Korean government engaged different,、um, chose a different strategy for their、uh, public-private partnership. They engaged four biotech companies to come up with the test 
and to ramp up the testing capacity really fast and uh, and come up with a national program. And I know that somewhere in the U.S., you you, you guys do have some uh, drive-through run by um, charities. I'm seeing news on that. Um, so um, I think um, U.S. Um, should could think of going uh, adopting the uh, the South Korean way of the testing. And coming back to Singapore's um, new measures, which was uh, announced today by the Prime Minister, um, because um, over the past one month, from end of February to end of March, uh, actually the cases from Singapore uh, increased from 100 to 1,000. And of course, like I said, the second wave of cases were mainly from uh, people returning from the U.S. or from from the Europe, from Europe, but uh, in Singapore, we also start to see more clusters uh, in the local community. A lot of them, um, the the contact tracing team can trace back to the same cluster, but but we start to see more and more um, unlinked uh, clusters. I think um, what was very alarming was that we started to see dormitories for foreign workers. Uh, uh, at least uh, three or four uh, dormitories started to have this outbreak, and also a nursing home where we started to see uh, a, a very elderly cases. So that was alarming. So that was why the main reason I think the Singapore government decided to um, go for a very decisive measure instead of like slowly, gradually ramping up the, the, the measures. Um, so the measure so far is to switch to home-based um, learning from schools and uh, to to work from home as much as possible. Only businesses that are essential will be open. Um, and that's then, just in the last 24 hours we've gotten that. Is that correct? Uh, the Prime Minister uh, announced his press conference 4 p.m. and we uh, so it's about eight hours. Yeah, eight hours ago. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I can add a little comment on the testing situation in the U.S. Um, there's many um, statistics, not just the testing numbers, that you can see the inadequacy. Um, so, for example, you can use the death number like times 100 to kind of, you know, back up envelope which uh, generate the confirmed cases, uh, which are generate the cases in the local, and pretty much no state in the U.S. is reporting that much. Mostly, it's. 70 or, or 50 percent. So there's under testing. And also, if you have done um, very wide testing, the median age of confirmed cases should be lower than 50. And a, a lot of age distribution uh, released by states in the U.S. are showing age distribution, uh, age median age higher than 50, which is another suggestion that testing is not adequate. And also, Santa Clara County, which actually have detailed information on how long each test come back in the U.S., at least in their county. Right now in the U.S., it still takes two, two and a half days to get the test results. Well, uh, the technology, the PCR technology, which uh, is the standard one, requires really takes five hours. And you know, with this new testing, 15 minutes, the technology is there. But, you know, people need to do the testing, right? So the capacity is not there yet. So I think... Um, the testing situation in the U.S. is still going to require a little bit more time. And, you know, and I'm looking at Singapore with 1,000, 1,100 confirmed cases, only five deaths. I mean, such a low death number. Yes. Um, it, it, in, in, in the U.S., it looks like we've gotten about two and a half. I mean, in the world, it's almost 5% of those recorded cases. So, if we really, what what do we really believe the death rate is? I mean, I've heard of 1% or less. Does that mean that really the number of people that are infected, if, if we're getting 5%, means it's got to be five times higher? Um, uh, or is there another way to interpret those statistics? I think for the death mortality rate, death rate, um, you know, your denominator, what is your denominator? That is a very crucial problem. And it links back to that, you know, which population you are testing. So I think, um, there, you know, if you're only testing those that are critically ill, 
So of course your death rate will be high. But if you adopt a more, you know, screening-based testing like South Korea, like Singapore, like Taiwan, you will see the deaths. You 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 will have a much bigger denominator there. And and also if you can detect those cases early on, you will in, in, you will intervene early. You will monitor them. You can follow their clinical courses. Um, so a lot of them are are mild cases, and they do not need to probably be admitted to mm-hmm. intensive care. So you actually free up the beds mm-hmm. for for real sick patients mm-hmm. that, are, that really need those services. So you don't burden the health care system. What we are seeing now in the U.S. or in Italy, probably because the health care system was overwhelmed. So, you know, you, you even you try as much as possible to triage, you know, to to um, to, to, to separate the mild cases with the severe cases, but the system is already overloaded. So, you know, the turnaround becomes uh, a big problem. Do you think the true of mortality is closer to one then? Um, if we... If we could test everybody, uh, what's your opinion? Well, I'd, actually, I, I don't know whether there's... I, I cannot give you a number at the moment, mm. but I think what we are seeing from 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 Asia, probably one, you know, less than 2% is acceptable. Um, I don't think, you know, previously some people were saying that it was like, you know, the death rate probably would like the, the flu would be, you know, you know, less than one percent. I really doubt it because we are really dealing with an unknown new virus, and you know the the spread is still going on. The virus will keep mutating, and we 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 just don't know whether the the you know the mutation will cause the virus to adapt to the human body even more easily and to increase the virulence. Um, there's some anecdotal observation from Taiwan that. We, you know, the second wave of of in, um, of cases coming back from Europe, um, from uh, developing the symptoms to you know getting downhill, seems to be much faster than the first wave. But um, these are purely anecdotal. We have to wait for the real data mm-hmm. to, to come out. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me ask Professor Siegel a question here. You know, one of the things they've, they've been talking about both, you know, it seems like some of these Asian countries are doing a lot of monitoring using technology, sort of the phones. And you know, do you think the, the, the U.S. privacy the debate and discussion is is preventing us from doing more of that today? You know, everybody's been so concerned about their privacy that perhaps that uh, we're not doing some of those other measures that might help keep us a little safer. I think safer. it's availability of the tests. Honestly, I... I think people don't, you know, I, I think, and, and we have to be able to do, you know, surveillance testing also, and you know, and, 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 and if we have this five-minute test where you do a nasal swab, we get a group of people do a nasal swab and they put them in, in that and we just, you know, we have, yes, we have, we have to, I think we have to have, we have to have that done, but we have to have enough of those nasal swab tests around and I have no idea how many there are. But you're right. I mean, I, I, I don't think, I don't know if it's privacy, but I think, the, the, you know, the governors and the president, you know, say that, you know, we have, we have to have this random test. And I don't know why anyone would would object. We could keep names, you know, secret and, 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 uh, and just use the data. But uh, we've got to have more testing. Uh, we were sort of running out of the first part of the program. Any closing thoughts from Lee Chen or, or Dr. Wong? Any closing thoughts on, on sort of this discussion here? Dr. Wong, uh, you mentioned the, the, your, your own research. Do you want to you know, explain a little bit in terms of you know, what doctors are doing to the next, for the next phase? Um, I, I'm actually a cancer researcher, so my main focus is actually not directly related to the pandemic. But, you know, we, we do have tools in the lab we could use to study to help. So one issue now is, like I mentioned, the clinical course of COVID-19 is very long. It, you know, to clear the virus usually take up to two to three weeks. Sometimes even, you know, we've seen cases to, you know, two months. So it would take up a lot of resources from the healthcare system. So um, if if we can develop some biomarkers to 
to help predict who will go downhill clinically and who will just recover with supported care, then you know we can have we can help with the triaging of of patients and really keep the most needed uh, intensive care resources for the most needy patients. So um, this is something that I um, I'm trying to propose on Taiwan. Well, Dr. Huang, thank you so much. I know thank it's you. middle of the night for you. Thanks so much for staying up late to join thank us. Thank you for uh, having me. We'll love to check back in how things continue to go in Asia. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about oil on this segment. We're working to get Art Berman. He's a petroleum geologist, 42 years of oil and gas experience. He comments a lot on what's happening, uh, and it's really a very timely conversation. You know, oil has been one of the big worries for the market this year um, with this big drop in oil prices from you know over fifty sixty dollars a barrel down to twenty dollars a barrel uh, and that's you know compounding with basically all the shutdown of the economy so there's a lot less demand um, you have this big supply pressure you have um, Saudi Arabia and Russia battling uh, for space uh, and and sort of pumping more oil and they're putting even more pressure on a lot of the US companies and so, you know, it's it, it's just this huge glut of oil that keeps putting the prices down and, and then no demand to pick it up. Um, and so, you know, I think there's now all these negotiations about what's going to happen. It's a very big geopolitical question. Uh, and so we're, we're working to get Art here on the program to, to share his thoughts, uh, what's happening, what can be done, what can be cut. Lee Chen, any other takeaways from the, the first part of the program before we get to, to Art on the show? Yes. Um, I think um, first I want to give, uh, and there's so much attention on New York, but I, I do want to warn people that in the U.S.'s situation, they're actually more, a little bit more serious hotspots, hot uh, which is not New York. For example, the three places uh, based on the data I've been looking really could potentially have some kind of medical um, you know, capacity breach is Louisiana. Um, Michigan, uh, particularly Detroit area, and to a little bit lesser degree is in Georgia and Florida. So these um, these two, you know, these four states um, have a have a really a high ramp up in new cases coming. And even in place we live, Pennsylvania, uh, there could be uh, surprises uh, out of Philadelphia area. Because uh, so the, the back of envelope number I kind of use is that. Daily new cases divided by total cases. If it's above 20, that's really serious. If it's under 10%, then that's good. And, you know, we are, if we could limit under 10%, which uh, from, you know, numbers game, it, it means that you can double, you can use seven days to double the, double the cases, just like when we talk about returns. If you have um, 10% return every uh, every seven years, you, you got double your money. So um, right now, Pennsylvania is having you know, more than 10% each day. So let me turn the conversation over to what's been going on in the oil market. So Art, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Good to be here. So can you tell us a little bit, um, give, give our listeners a little bit about your background, how you, you know, what you've been studying in the oil markets, uh, and, and then we can talk about the current situation here. Sure. I'm a geologist. I've been working in the oil and gas business for a little over 40 years, and I follow things rather closely and, you know, I have a blog and I'm active on Twitter, so I pay a lot of attention to uh price trends, supply and demand, things like that. Yeah, and so I, I, one of the comments I saw from you on Twitter, what got me thinking about getting you on today was before, uh, maybe even before I think Trump put out any comment, you were thinking about the oil price potentially having the developments getting towards the bottom. Any any commentary on what got you talking about that and, and what we think is happening with all the negotiations that are happening today? Right, so it's a little complicated. I'll try to make it simple, but... <laughs> Um, basically, um, prices uh, in oil follow what oil traders do. So oil traders are always trying to figure out, you know, if it's going, if price is going down, how far is it going to go down? It's going up, how far is it going to go up? And that's something we call price discovery. And so, in order to understand where that's going, um, I look at what the what the retail price of, of oil is, in other words, what they're actually paying to producers versus the futures market. And that's been telling me that 
the price of uh, of those retail uh, markets has been increasing, even while futures markets were going down. The other thing I look at is something called the spreads. That's the difference between the current month contract and some months out into the future. And that information has been telling me that things are turning around. So just about the time that prices themselves actually started rising, the futures prices yesterday, you know, uh, Trump decided to get involved and, uh, you know, a little bit late to the show. And, of course, the markets went berserko and uh, prices went up uh, quite a bit. So uh, the question, I guess, that you have to ask is, was that a good thing or a bad thing or a neutral thing? And obviously, if you like higher oil prices, I guess it was a good thing. But the question is, you know, I mean, it's it's sentiment only. Uh, You know, there's been no action. And so, you know, is it just a head fake or, I mean, is this something – that we really should, uh, you know, pay attention to. And my sense is it's going to be a pretty tough deal to put together for us, you know, give them all the credit in the world for trying. But as Goldman Sachs has said, uh, you know, a little bit late, buddy. (laughs) You know, the time to have done this maybe would have been a month ago. When you think about like just the whole supply demand issue and so how much we actually need, you know, now, you know, how much we need with the whole economy, a lot of the global economy shut down. How much do you think the demand when you think about just maybe give people a sense of the supply demand balance when he's talking about 10 million barrels, maybe we get 15 million barrels, you know, in a a dream scenario. What do you think is of, you know, where the demand drop is and, and, and how do you balance that supply demand picture today, given all the uncertainty? Well, and, and uncertainty is the key because we don't really know the answer to, to your question. But um, I think a reasonable estimate is that we're down probably 20 million barrels a day in the first quarter. And I've seen uh, credible estimates as of this morning that say 35 million barrels. So hmm. to put that in context, you know, let's say that um, – that all of this initiative of, of Trump's and Saudi Arabia and the Texas Railroad, let, let's say it all comes together perfectly. Everybody miraculously agrees tomorrow or Monday, yeah, we're going to do it. And everybody puts it in action right away. And let's say the number's 10 million uh, barrels a day. Well, you know, that's about half of what demand is a down in, you know, like what I think is is about right, which is eighteen to twenty. If it's thirty five, well, it's even worse. And and so so the and, and you say, well, it's better. And 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 yeah, it is better. But we're talking about numbers here, uh, demand, negative growth that are so astronomical that I mean, it, you know, it's it's like the unemployment claims number. It's it's hard to even look at it on the same graph with you know any kind of uh, yeah. any kind of highs from the past. And so. Uh, I, I guess the point is, sure, I'll, you know, we'll take it if he can do it, if if they can do it. But it is literally a drop in the bucket. And then the reality is, I mean, how long does it take to get everybody to agree to that? I mean, these are, you know, OPEC Plus was a group that a month ago couldn't agree to anything. And, and you know, now it's, it's all going to be smooth sailing. I mean, let's hope so uh, for the sake of you know, of the global economy. And, 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 you know, that's another thing. I mean, you hear a lot of people say, well, low oil prices are good for consumers. And and sure enough, I mean, if all you're thinking about is, is the price of gasoline and uh, the products you use, but the unfortunate truth is that uh, there's a direct correlation between oil consumption and gross domestic product. I mean, and it's, it's, it's so linear and so reliable, it's, it's frightening. And so with all of the big global economies using so much less oil, that has a lot to say about just where our whole industrial financial credit systems are. And, I mean, you just have to say that if oil demand is is down by 20 or 30 percent, then it stands to reason that GDP could be down that much as well. And that's not good for anybody. Um, And, of course, then there's just all the jobs that – are related to the oil and gas business and the service sector. And in the United States, that's quite a bit. So um, it it may feel good in the short term, uh, cheaper gas at the pump, but uh, I I don't think anybody is benefiting. I mean, this is a global 
a global economic slowdown, and oil is just kind of the, the leading indicator here. How do you think about, you know, they always say the, the here for high prices, high prices and low prices, people won't be able to keep producing be, without going into bankruptcy, running out of money. Where would, and there's a lot of discussion about what is, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia has a price of $2 and they can drill and, and make money and they need to. Where, where do you say in the U.S. who's pr- ramped up so much production in the last few years, where do you say that break-even price is? Are, are a lot of these companies now going to be out of business? Or what's your sense on, on the U.S. industry? Well, first of all, let's let's get things straight on Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia's cost to drill and produce is probably uh, in the thirty to forty dollar range. Now, when you see these super low numbers, you know, two eighty or three, whatever the number is, see various numbers. That's what they call their lifting costs. Okay, that's just what it costs to operate the well long after it's been drilled and paid for and, and all of that. So, you know, that's a, that, that, that's, that's a deceptive number. So when we're talking about, you know, more or less the all-in uh, cost for U.S., which is your real question, uh, it's about $60 a barrel. And, and that's not my guess. I mean, that's what the, what the companies have, have told the U.S. government. Uh, every year they're required to file a form, which is sort of like an income tax form, in which they, they have to project the, the future cash flows from their proved reserves. And I go through that in some painful detail. And, you know, it varies from company to company, obviously, but, uh, you know, somewhere in the 55 to $65 range is, is about it. So your question is no, everybody's losing money at prices below that and of course today we're at $25 for US oil West Texas intermediate so everybody's losing their shirts i mean there's just no way around it and and the and the truth being that at these oil prices uh nobody in OPEC is making money either so when companies or when countries Russia says for instance oh we can you know we we can survive for many years again they're talking about just their lifting costs, just just operating costs. So, you know, that's that's like me saying, well, you know, all I need to go to the grocery store and, uh, you know, take care of basic living expenses is, you know, $1,000 a month. But, of course, that doesn't include paying my mortgage. That doesn't include any of my, my debts, my cable TV. And, and so, you know, the, so the truth is that, if all you needed to do was eat, yeah, $1,000 a month might get it, but that's not your cost of living. So if all you need to do to, to operate is, you know, is, is, is $5, let's say, well, you can do, or, you know, you can do that for a while, but you're going to let all these other costs, you know, slide. So the truth is everybody, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Russia, U.S. shale producers, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, everybody needs prices to be somewhere in the fifty to sixty dollar range just to stay in business. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with one of the real experts on the oil and gas industry, Art Berman, talking about what he sees going on in in the energy space. Um, so, Art, what if 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 that is true that there are all the global producers are so much higher break even they're just sort of getting by? What do you think is the politics behind? what they're trying to do. Are they trying to just put the U.S. industry out of business and they think they've got more staying power? What What is all this, this Russia-Saudi Arabia fighting about? What are they trying to do? Well, that's that's a real good question. And, and, the, and the honest answer is nobody really knows. But let me just say from the outset, I think that that this, um, you know, this, this narrative that they're trying to put U.S. producers out of business is strictly that it's a meme it's it's a it's a simple a simplistic way of understanding something that's a lot more complicated is u.s production and shale production uh annoying to the saudis and the russians sure it is i mean when they cut production we benefit because we don't cut i mean that's annoying um but is it is it a primary reason for what's going on I find absolutely no evidence for that. I fi- I don't find it now. I didn't find it in 2014, the last time there was a price collapse. What I see happening here very simply is in the 1980s, Saudi Arabia by itself cut 6.5 million barrels a day to try to support the price of oil, 
price of oil kept going down, 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 down. The king fired their minister and said, to heck with this. We're going to produce as much as we can. We got to get cash flow. We got to regain market share. That's been the Saudi playbook ever since. We're never going to make that mistake again. We're never going to cut unilaterally without help and support from others. We're never doing it again. And so in 2014, prices were going down the toilet and uh, Saudi Arabia called Russia and said, will you guys join us in cuttings? Russia said no. They said, okay, forget it. And they increased production and they lowered prices. Same scenario just played out in early March. They went to Russia. They said, will you continue to cut with us? Russia said, no, we're not interested. Saudi Arabia said, okay, forget it. You know, <laughs> we're going to cut prices. So it, it, that's just their standard response. Now, you know, to their, to everyone's credit here, I mean, they're trying to run a business, you know, and, and that's why I, I think there are just bigger fish to fry for, for Saudi Arabia and Russia than worrying about, you know, a, a dozen or so uh, producers out in West Texas. I mean, as I said, they're, it's an issue. It's definitely an issue. I'm not trying to say it's nothing. I'm just saying it's, it's, it, there, there are much bigger considerations going on here. Why yeah. won't Russia cut? Because Russia, I think, again, I don't know. I think they're looking at the, you know, the COVID-19 world shutdown, and they're saying, why? Why should we do this? I mean, there's you know, nothing that we're going to do. There's no amount that we can cut that's going to make a difference here. So why bother? I mean, let, you know, why don't we just do the best we can, sort of every man for himself, every country for itself? Let's try to survive and, and, and do the best we can. That, that's my take. I, you know, I'm not right. saying that everybody else is completely crazy. I'm just saying I don't, I don't, see, the, I don't see the logic. Can I um, have a question? Um, how much of the strategic uh, reserve demand? Because at this low price, I I would think a lot of countries want to build up their reserve. Like, how much of this demand can be absorbed like in terms of numbers? Not very much. Um, now, China, of course, is uh, you know is actively buying oil for their strategic reserves. That's nothing new. Um, China is always buying oil. Uh, the U.S., not so much. Uh, we've been actually selling oil out of our reserves. But if we just take the U.S. reserves for an example, we've got about <clears throat> four or five days' worth of extra space. In other words, four or five days of, of our production, that if we put it all into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, that's how long it would take to fill it. So it's significant. Uh, it's about 75 million barrels, but again, it's kind of a drop in the bucket compared with the, you know, the bigger problem of the fact that people just aren't using oil, and and you can't just turn off these wells. I mean, it would be, you know, a country like Russia or Saudi Arabia, they can. I mean, the, you know, the top person says, okay, tomorrow we're turning them all off. In the United States, there are thousands and thousands of individual companies, and no one has the authority to tell them all, you have to do this. And nor is it's not even legal for them to collaborate and make those kinds of choices. So it's a complicated situation. And, and again, everything is on the table, and I'm not saying that any of these ideas shouldn't be pursued. I, I think we should pursue everything we can. It's just, I, I think it's, it's a mistake to think that we can fix this problem. The, the problem, and I'm talking not just about oil, I'm talking about the global economic recession or depression that we're, we're in right now. This is not going to go away until we first resolve our, our, our pandemic issue. Um, there just isn't a solution an immediate solution to either of them. We we know the things we should do to try to make them better, and we're doing them. But you just you just can't you know you can't. There's not a solution to this situation. What, when you think so, we're, we're 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 talking right before the Trump meeting with all the executives in the U.S. and during during these pandemic crisis moments, a lot of these emergency measures come to be. So things you didn't think you could do before because of rules regulations, they sort of scrap and new things come out of it. Do you think? 
the I mean, what are the types of things you think he's talking to them about? The types of things that maybe uh, we might anticipate them trying to collaborate on 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 maybe it's you know how how do they bring some of those production cuts maybe? Sure, and and that's an important thing for people to understand. So there's a lot of talk about Texas and the, the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates Texas production. And the and, and so the the Texas Railroad Commission has the authority to tell producers you can only produce so many barrels a day from this well, that well, and the other well. And and until the early 1970s, that was the way that production was managed in the United States. And once once the the country reached its peak of production. The Texas Railroad Commission and their equivalent in Louisiana and Oklahoma just said, okay, we give up. But those laws or those regulations remain in place. And so the, you know, the, the, the major states, producing oil states, do have the authority to mandate, if you will, that producers limit their production to these so-called allowable rates, and that's, that process is called proration, prorating the production forward. So, you know, and, and that's a good idea. I mean, conservation is always a good idea, not just for the economy, but for, you know, conserving your natural resources, which are, you know, part of the treasure of, of, of the country. So, so to, to say that, you know, you shouldn't do that or you can't do that, that's not the issue. The issue is, what would it take to make that happen? And, and if, since we haven't done it for 50 years, um, and, and since the Texas Railroad Commission, as far as I know, is closed for business, just like, <laughs> or, or it's on a skeleton staff, um, what would it take to put together all of the necessary orders and regulations get them out to the producers who are also not working for the most part and get them to actually limit their production and comply with that. It's going to take a while. We ran out of time, but uh, it could be, it could start at today's meeting with President Trump. It's interesting, the conversation. Art Berman, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks, Lee Chen Ren, uh, Professor Siegel, uh, Patty Hall, Dion Simkins for helping us produce during this time of crisis. You listen to our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on Sirius XM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.